All right, guys, so uh, I, have, I have to move through this passage today because it's a lot to get to. So we're starting a brand new series today, and it's in uh, 1 Corinthians, and we're calling this series Consumer Christianity. I'll explain what that means a little bit later on. But today we're starting this series, and it's written by the, uh, the Apostle Paul. And I love this book. One of my favorite books in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians. Uh, many of Paul's letters are written to churches that are being persecuted for their faith from the outside. But 1 Corinthians is different. Corinth was a different kind of place. This church is struggling from the inside. There's all kinds of sin and disunity in this church. And Paul helped plant this church before, and he spent 18 months there helping the church grow. But now he has received word that this church is really struggling. Now, they hadn't really lived out the vision. This church had not lived out the vision of what Paul imagined when he planted this church. And it, rem it reminds me of a story. This is a guy named Harvey Wilcox. You won't know who he is. But in 1883, this man, Harvey Wilcox, he was a Christ follower from the Midwest, and he decided to move his family to Southern California. And he bought some land just north of downtown Los Angeles. And he had this vision for this land. He envisioned a place where um, Christians could gather and experience deep community with one another. And he believed this place would become a place that would transform culture for the gospel. And so he took his land. He divided it up into parcels of smaller properties that he had purchased and he began giving away sections of this land to Christian organizations and Christian denominations. And he wanted to see this church planning movement spawn there in Southern California. And he envisioned this town where, where alcohol and gambling and prostitution were forbidden, a place where Christianity was the foundation of the community. Now, you might wonder what he decided to name this place that he envisioned would become this Christian utopia. And so he asked his wife, he said, what would you like to name this place that we own? And she said she would like to name it after her favorite Midwestern estate back in Illinois. And she decided to call it Hollywood. Yes, the Hollywood that you and I know about, its original founder had this great spiritual purpose, this great spiritual vision for that place, and obviously it has fallen short of the founder's vision of what that place was supposed to be. Now, Paul knows the disappointment of having a vision for something, but then having that not live up to reality. And so he had this vision for this church, what they were supposed to be like, and they weren't living up to that reality. Now, some people look at the church today, and they say things like, you know, if we can just get back to the New Testament, you know, how church used to be back Back in those days, it would be so much better today. Well, have you read books like 1 Corinthians? Uh, before we get into all of their sins and their issues, let's talk about the place, the place of Corinth. Here's a map that shows you uh, mainly Greece, and you see there on the map where Corinth is located. Now, this is an interesting place because the location, it's a crossroads for trade. And so it's by the water, of course, and so there's lots of commerce coming and going. But whenever there's lots of trade happening and people coming and going from other places, it's also a place for other religions, other ideas to, to sort of fester there as well. And there are certain cities, and these kind of towns become like a party town, right? Uh, so there are certain cities that you think of. When you think of party town, you think of certain places, like maybe New York City, maybe Los Angeles, Miami, Las Vegas, Temple, Texas, right, is always in there for you guys, I know. 
Um, but Corinth had a reputation, and overlooking the city, there was this hill called Acro-Corinth. On top of that hill stood this large temple to the goddess Aphrodite. She was the goddess of what? Love. Someone out there knows that. They're like, yes, the goddess of love. And uh, she's the Greek goddess of love. And there were over a thousand priestesses. I can't really say that, uh, that word, priestesses. And they were, sorry, this is a PG-13 sermon. They were all prostitutes, these priestesses. And in the evening, they would descend this hill and enter the streets of Corinth, seeking people to pay for their services. So this kind of gives you an idea of what kind of place Corinth was like. It was cosmopolitan. It was diverse, had different races, different languages, different ethnicities, different cultures. And the city had a way of attracting professional speakers. Not Christians, but like professional speakers. And they would charge a fee to attend their, their speaking in, in environments. This might be like what you would see like a TED Talk or a motivational speaker today. Uh, but sometimes it could be for entertainment. So maybe like we think of stand-up comedy. So it could be like for entertainment and just to wow the crowds. And so the, the story of how this church came about in such an unlikely place is pretty amazing because Paul is over in Athens, and then he travels over to Corinth on one of his missionary journeys. And while there, he meets this Jewish couple, and their, name is, their names are Priscilla and Aquila. I always wonder if they got married because their name, names rhymed. You know, like, our names rhyme. We should get married, you know. But Priscilla and Aquila are their names. And they were tent makers, just like Paul was. And so, like you might, if you have something in common with somebody, you kind of connect over that. And they're also fairly new believers. So they go with him to Corinth, and they start planning, they try to plant a church there in Corinth. Now, in Corinth, Paul would go to the local synagogues to preach the gospel to Jews and Greeks, and they began rejecting his message there in those synagogues. And so Paul says, he says, that's it, I'm going to the Gentiles. And uh, so Paul begins preaching to Gentiles there in Corinth. And many start coming to faith and start getting baptized. Now, if you experience rejection before, you might be a little bit fearful or gun-shy, and so it might happen again to you. So you might lose the desire to keep going. So one night, God gives Paul this vision, and God speaks to him through this vision. In Acts chapter 18, verse 9 through 11, we, read, we hear about this vision that Paul gets from God as he might be discouraged about continuing to preach there in Corinth. And God says this, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And I look at that, and I think, what an act of grace that is, that God would show up in a vision and just give him confidence that he, he is to continue preaching and teaching, as, as intimidating as it might be. Think of yourself going to a place like Vegas, New York City, Miami, Los Angeles, those kinds of places. How intimidated you'd be to share the gospel in those places. That's how Paul must have felt in the city of Corinth. But this act of grace, God shows up in a vision and encourages him to keep on going. And he stays a year and a half. And God says, I have many in this city who are my people. I love that line. They're my people. Go find them. Go preach to them, Paul. After he leaves Corinth, a while later, he gets this letter from some people, and he gets word that the church in Corinth is struggling. It was full of, of cliques and division, people fighting. I know y'all have no idea what that's about, right? Uh, they're fighting over, like, who's the best speaker and the best teacher in that church. 
At the church meals, the rich were getting drunk on communion wine. They're indulging in food, leaving out the poor in those fellowship meals. They're committing all kinds of sexual sin and idolatry in this church. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians to clear up their confusion. Now, many in that church back then had this attitude. Their attitude was this, what's in it for me? They're like using the church, using the body of Christ to advance their own agenda, their, their, their selves. And they had this, this mindset, what's in it for me? I think we see the same thing today. Instead of seeing the church as a body that we belong to, we view it like a business sometimes. Just, I'm, I'm just going to go to this place and just consume, consume, consume for myself. And if they do something I don't like, I'm out. We, we treat it kind of like a business, kind of like a restaurant. If they give me bad service, I'm going to go somewhere else. And that's how we tend to see the church today oftentimes with this consumer mindset. I think of, uh, you know, just a couple of years ago, you guys know we've walked through it together, but I'd say from like 2020 to 2022, somewhere in there, you saw this come out a lot in the church, not just here, but like worldwide with all the COVID mess that took place and, you know, churches having to make some hard decisions. Was every decision correct and right? I would say probably not, but we had to make some hard decisions and every church had to do that. And so people began just dropping their church and saying, listen, like, I'm not coming back there. They made me wear a mask or they made me do this or that. And those kind of things took place. Then there was, coupled with that, there was the political tension and the racial tension that took place in those couple of years. And many people throughout the world just literally canceled their church. And, and listen, what's funny about that is Christians say they don't like cancel culture, but then we did it to ourselves. We did it to ourselves. So there's a way in which a lot of us, we struggle with approaching the church with this mindset. They do one thing that I disagree with, and I'm out the door. I'm going to bail. And so this is kind of what's happening here in Corinth, where um, there are many connections with this church in Corinth, and what happens, I think, today. Now, I've described the church to you as divided and sinful as they were. How do you think Paul might begin this letter? With the setup, it sounds like he might just come out of the gate just yelling and screaming through the, the words on the page to this church, but that's not what he does. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, first few verses. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So look how Paul addresses this sinful, broken church. He says, to those that are sanctified, called to be saints, grace to you and peace to you. If I was writing this, I might be ripping into this church from the outset. That's not what Paul does. I imagine that he, as he writes these opening words, when he says the words, Paul, called by the will of God, I just imagine him just laughing and shaking his head. Like he is the most unlikely person writing to the most unlikely church. You know, I think sometimes we take that for granted, understanding that, that when we're looking at someone else's life, we're like, they, they really don't have it all together. And it's like, wait, where did I come from? Let's look at my own story. For those of us that have a long story in history with Christ, We've got to remind ourselves of that, and Paul, I think, does that here. Reminds them of his own story, 
who he's been called to be as, as this apostle, and he's this unlikely apostle writing to this unlikely church. Look at verse 4. It says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in, in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now listen, they started letters a little bit differently back then, all right? Today we just say, dear so-and-so, and we just, if we write a letter at all, that's how we write it, right? We just, we, we don't say it so about ourselves, we just write the letter and put our name at the end. But back then they would go on and on about like who's writing this and, and, and these greetings and so on. For nine verses, Paul, Paul does this. But I want you to notice a few things here in verse four. What does Paul do? It said, Paul gives thanks for this church. So after I've, you'll hear about their sin as we go through the book. But Paul gives thanks for this church. Like this church is causing him headaches from a distance. But he gives thanks for these people, these believers that are struggling. And listen, I know that sometimes we don't always say this to you out loud, but I want to let you know this. We, I speak for myself on our leadership team, we are thankful for you. We're grateful for you. I will tell you that I've, I've done this for like over 20 years, but every year around like graduation time, there's a bit of sadness that comes into our leadership team. It kind of feels melancholy, like we got to say goodbye to another class. And listen, you might just think, well, you just get used to that because you've been doing this for a while, and you're just used to that, that thing that happens every, every spring. But listen, it's hard. It's difficult to say goodbye to students as they go off to whatever's next for them. Now, I love when they come back and serve, like some of them have done that recently. We love that. But it's, it's difficult because... I have to remind myself continually how grateful and thankful I am for you all. And not just for like what you do, like impact, mission trips, those kinds of things, but look what Paul says. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. So he's not even thanking them and, and, and saying he's thankful for them because of stuff they do for Paul. He's just thankful for them because of the grace that he has seen God already work out in their lives. Now, how is Paul able to give thanks? Um, he sees the grace that's given to them by God. So this is so important because Paul looks at this church. Listen, Paul looks at this church as they are in Christ before he sees anything else about them. This needs to be the starting point for how we see other people and even how you see yourself if you're a believer. This doesn't mean that we never confront sin and we just say, no, no, we're not going to talk about that sin because, you know, you're a child of God. We're not going to, we, we address things. We, we confront those things in love. But the rest of this book is one big confrontation. But he acknowledges first their position in Christ before he addresses all the problems that are in the church. So in verse 8, he calls them, he says, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you hear some of their sins that they're doing in this church later in the series, you're going to be like, guiltless? I don't think that's the right word to use with them, Paul. But he says guiltless 
because he knows their final destination if they're, if they're believers. Now, he's keeping his eye fixed on the big picture, who they are in Christ. And I think some of you need to hear that today. If you're in Christ, saved by him, one day you're going to stand before him and he's going to see you as guiltless before the Father because the righteousness of Christ has been applied to you. Now, that's not permission to go live just however you want. In the end, it's going to be okay. It's not what I'm saying. But some of you all are so steeped in shame because of what you've already done, and that shame is keeping you trapped in condemnation, keeping you trapped in those sins. Or maybe your struggle isn't shame, guilt, condemnation. Maybe it's judging other people. Maybe you're the self-righteous type. Maybe you're so fed up and frustrated with what you see in the church that you want to bail on the church. I want you to remember this idea. The church is a fellowship of sinners before it is a fellowship of saints. Don't ever keep your eye off the big picture where God is taking this thing, where God, the work God can do in someone's heart and in someone's life and what their final destination is going to be if they're a Christian. This should give you hope if you want to bail on the church because Paul keeps his eye on the end result. Then we ignore sin. It's quite the opposite, but we do so with a new lens, looking at someone as they are in Christ. That's what Paul does here in these first few verses. In the first nine verses, I want you to see something else. We see the name of Jesus nine times in nine verses. Paul wants them to know that this church is built on the person of Jesus, not the personalities of their leadership. And here's why that's important. Look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, whoever Chloe is, she has some people, and that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, that'd be Peter, or I follow Christ. Now, once again, Paul appeals to them by what? He says, I appeal to you by the name of Jesus. Because what was happening in Corinth was there was division in this church, and this is why Paul says so much about Jesus, because they've lost sight of that. They've lost sight of Jesus. Now, there was this woman named Chloe who had reported to Paul through her people that there was this great division and strife in the church at Corinth, and what caused it was instead of focusing on Christ, they were focusing on human leaders. They were focused way too much on human leaders and who's, who's in charge and who's the best leader. Some people like Paul, and so they say, I'm of the party of Paul. Some say, I like this guy named Apollos, who was apparently a great speaker and a great teacher. And some said, I like, I'm with Apollos. And then some people said, I'm with Cephas. They liked Peter. That was another name for Peter. And then some, went, some wanted to appear like they're just above all this human division. And so they would say, you know, we don't really follow human leaders. We only follow Jesus. And they're like the, the, the super spiritual type, right? And that, that party has their problems as well. So I want to break this down for you. I got this from a guy named Andrew Wilson. Here's how you look at the conflict in Corinth. There is the, the spiritual party. This is like the Paul party. These might be people who have been Christians for a while. Maybe they were led to Christ by Paul, and they hold Paul in high esteem. And Paul has now moved on somewhere else. 
And they think about the good old days. Like, you know, when Paul was here, things were so much better when Paul was here. And they go too far holding him up to this high standard, putting him on a pedestal. And no one else can compare to the good old days when Paul was there in Corinth. And new leaders are beginning to emerge in that church, in that city. And these are the people, the spiritual people, that are sitting on the sidelines. And they're saying, you know, that's, that's, not, how, that's not how Paul would have done it. Paul was a better leader than you are. And if you look back, listen, if you look back on previous leaders that you've had in your life so far, and if you, if you start, start saying things like, you know, well, well, nobody was as good as that person. All right, listen, everyone has different gifts, right? But if you start comparing people and to the point where you want to check out and bail out of church, Here we go. All right, where was I? Uh, yes. If you look back on previous leaders that you've had and you start thinking about, like, you know what? It's just not as good as it was back when that person was in charge of my little group or whatever it is. And, and you start, listen, we can all handle some constructive criticism. Not saying you should never give feedback. That's important. But do it in a constructive way. But listen, if, if just nobody ever measures up to that previous leader that you had, and you now want to bail on the church, that's going to be a big problem for you going forward in your life. It shows your commitment to the church is only because of a particular leader and not because of Jesus. Listen, good leadership doesn't point to the leader themselves, but it should point us to Jesus. That's good leadership. And it's not to say that Paul wasn't doing that, but sometimes we elevate human leaders way too much. So that's the spiritual party. Then there's the sophisticated party. This might be the party of Apollos. And there's a party that says, we're about Apollos. He was this, we don't know a lot about Apollos, but we do know that he, was, he came from a city in Egypt called Alexandria. Uh, this was a creative university town, so he was kind of like this sophisticated intellectual type. And he was known as this great speaker, great teacher. And many began comparing him to Paul, and they gave preference to Apollos. Now, it's, it's hard for us to imagine because... We see Paul's writings. Apollos never wrote any scriptures, but apparently he was a good speaker in the early church. And we think of Paul being this great person of the faith, wrote lots of scriptures. We see those today. And it's hard for us to imagine that back then that they said Paul wasn't a very good speaker. It's, it's highly likely that if Paul came in here and he was kind of humble and got on the stage and, and preached a sermon to you guys, that in the words of y'all's generation, you would be like, yeah, he was mid. It was kind of mid, right? That's what you might say. And that's what Paul was considered to be back then. And so people are like, no, no, Apollos, he's this great speaker. I don't like Paul. I like this guy named Apollos. And so this is like the sophisticated, right? And uh, so we do this today, I think. We, we like certain people over others, and it can make us hypercritical. And not only do we compare people that we know in person, but we, because of what we can find online, then every preacher today gets compared to, like, you know, J.D. Greer and Matt Chandler and all the big names out there, and they're like, well, they're not as, well, yeah, there's like four or five people that you compare someone to, right? And because it's online, of course, everyone's getting compared to everybody today in today's culture. And so the Apollos party would compare to people who just love having their minds stimulated. Example, over the years, this is the parent or the student that comes to us and says, you know what, this, what y'all do down here, this just isn't deep enough for me. 
what y'all do down here, it's like, I already know all this stuff. Like, they're, they're looking for the intellectual stimulation. And listen, there is a time for that. There are questions that you're curious about that you want to answer. But if you're just, like, so bent on just getting your little curiosity questions answered and not really being fed by the Word of God and through prayer, you're going to starve spiritually. Because the curiosity questions that you might have, that's not really going to always feed your soul the way you think it might. So the, the, the person that just thinks that they have their mind stimulated, that equals spiritual growth, that's not always the case. That's not always the case. This is a sophisticated party. Then we have the serious. And there is some overlap here. But then there is the Cephas party, the, the Peter party. And we don't know for sure, but some believe that Peter may have visited this church at one point. And if so, that might be how this party was formed. But because of Peter's Jewish background, some of his followers may have been tempted to go live under the old laws of Judaism, even though they were now new Christians. This is the kind of person who struggles with legalism, adding rules to the gospel. And you will see this conflict play out in 1 Corinthians throughout the book. And we see this in the church today. Then lastly, we have the party that we'll call the smug. And this is the party of Jesus, the party of Christ, as it's called here. Now, at first, it might appear that this is the correct party. Because who's going to argue with, I follow Jesus? Who's going to argue about that? But here's why this is a, maybe a negative thing. This is the kind of person who looks at the other three parties and they say, you know, y'all are just so immature with all your divisions around human leadership. So I don't follow any human leaders. I only follow Jesus. Now, again, this sounds correct, but this is dangerous as well because you can see how this person could become smug and arrogant, individualistic, and not listen to anybody else in their life, right? They say they only listen to Jesus, but it might be, it might be their own voice that they're listening to. This is a person that often says things like, you know, um, you know God spoke to me, and this is what he told me. And listen, hear me out on this. I'm not saying it's always bad, but as a person that just declares things like God told me this, and you're sitting there going, well, well, how do I argue with that? How do I argue with God if you play the God card, right? And, and they never evaluate these supposed messages from God in the context of community. They just declare things as if God told them directly, and that's just how it is, and you've got to just deal with it. This person can be tempted to bail on the church because they have Jesus. They don't need anybody else. They don't need the body of Christ. Now, to be clear, it's not as if all these people that are mentioned in, in this passage, Apollos and Paul and Peter and even Christ himself, it's not that they're teaching division, but the followers are becoming divided because it's what can happen when we as the followers elevate people too highly. And so what does Paul say? He says in verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Parentheses. I love the parentheses. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so now Paul gets a little bit sarcastic here. And he says, listen, was I, was I Paul? Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? 
There are these people walking around that are boasting about who baptized them. I was baptized by Apollos or by Paul, by Peter. And, and Paul, I love this. He says, I baptized some people at your church, but beyond that, I don't really remember. Because who did it isn't that big of a deal. I will tell you there was one time that um, I put my foot in my mouth. There was a kid that walked into the outback a few years ago. He walks in. I'd never seen the kid before. And I said, hey, what's your name? And he looks at me and told me his name. And I, he, goes, he goes, you baptized me. And I was like, wait, what? You know? <laughs> and so we had this conversation. And I was like, well, you know, I baptized a lot of people. And so I just may have forgotten about that. I'm sorry. And so um, he was a nice guy about it. But um, I was kind of embarrassed. I apologized to him. But listen, I can't really remember all the people that we've baptized, right? That's kind of what Paul's doing here. It's not the point isn't who baptized you. The point is that you were baptized in the name of Jesus. His name should be the one that you connect with your baptism the most, right? Name it, name of Christ. So the point isn't who baptized, but that you were baptized. And uh, I want you to look what happens when we focus too much on human leadership. Look at verse 17, where it says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, which was a big deal in that society. Speak with eloquence and and be wise in the eyes of the world. And and speak with, you know, be like a, a good showman when you speak and you give your sermons. And he says, I didn't come with all that. You know why? Because lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. When you and I focus too much on human leadership and how they are performing or not performing, we empty the cross of its power. And we think that our spiritual growth is tied only to the power and skill of a human leader when we elevate people to a level higher than they should be. When we do that, we empty the cross of its power. J.D. Greer, he writes this. He says, every church has problems. But the difference is what kind. There are living problems, and there are dying problems. I want to be a part of a church with living problems. So living problems would be things like, hey, we have a lot of new believers, and they don't really know the gospel and how it applies to their life, and we got to teach that to them, and they're struggling immensely with sin. That's a living problem for a church to have. That's the kind of problem that the church in Corinth has. The church is growing, and it's making headway, But people just don't really know better than how they're living their lives previously. And that's a living problem. A dying problem is when people start bailing, running away, saying, I'm done with the church. And maybe the church is kind of stuck in its ways back in the past. They don't want to make any changes because of how things used to be. And the church is just slowly dying off. That's a dying problem. I want to be a part of a church that has living problems. Listen, every church has problems. The question is what kind? And so if you see certain problems here, which there are plenty of problems here, let's hope that they're the living kind and not the dying kind. And then whenever we see division in the church, you and I can do one of two things. We can either bail or we can do what Jesus does and do this. At her best and at her worst, Jesus loves his church. He laid down his life for her. He will never leave or forsake her. He will complete the work he started in her. In other words, Jesus never looked for more of God by having less of the church. Instead, he married her. The church is the chosen, beloved bride of Christ. What does it say about us if the church is good enough for the Father to adopt, for the Spirit to inhabit, and for Jesus to marry, but not good enough for us 
to join. So we're going to go to our breakouts, and if you're new, don't know where to